Uh, we love theology at the project, um, but uh, one of the problems with theology is that theology ends up in the driver's seat in a lot of churches, uh, and it becomes the main thing. When I'm talking about theology, I'm talking about intellectual knowledge about God and how he operates becomes the prime kind of driver. We care a lot about theology. We've got a statement of faith on the website that you can look at. Uh, we've got about a 47-page Elder Statement of Faith, which covers a whole bunch of our theological distinctives. But we are really, really keen not to put uh, intellectual truth in the driver's seat, but to see intellectual truth be grounded in reality, all right, and landed on the tarmac, so to speak. Um, so uh, I probably feel like my... Uh, I've been made to do, personally, I've been made to do practical theology, which is taking lofty theological truths and landing them on the tarmac. Does that make sense? So that's, that's part of the reason why the project is the way that it is. And, and this is the focus of, of where we're actually uh, going to be going, is like how do we take these lofty theological truths and land them on the tarmac? One of, uh, one of the things that's absolutely true about humanity is everyone's got to take on who or what humanity actually is, all right? The nature of humanity, the, the science of the study of human beings and their ancestors through time and who they are and the way they operate, that's anthropology, okay? And uh, I would say that most of my life I had quite a good anthropology in one particular area, but if you actually look at the Bible, the Bible speaks about human beings being three uh, general um, categories of anthropology and you can see that up on the screen there. You can see the Bible actually talks about the way that humans were originally created. It talks about what humans look like after the fall and it actually talks about what humans look like after they've been redeemed, after uh, kind of post-gospel. Uh, so here's the bottom line. You notice at the bottom there there's a, an arrow that goes in both directions. If you love Jesus, you're all of those at some point in time, all right? Not at the same time necessarily, although maybe that might actually be true as well, but you tend to kind of switch between each of those, okay? Uh, you're kind of a residual, kind of created anthropology. There's always that that's kind of kicking around in there. Uh, sometimes you're operating out of your redeemed anthropology, sometimes out of your fallen. If you're not a Christian and you don't love Jesus, you kind of get the first two without the hope. That's the bottom line, all right? It sounds harsh, but that's just how it is. You get the first two without the hope. Um, so... Most of my life, I think that I've been pretty clear and pretty strong on the middle one, okay? Fallen anthropology. But that, that has limited kind of benefit uh, for you. I mean, sometimes I've heard churches and leaders in churches say things like this. They say, we have a very robust theology of sin, all right? Which for me, I think sometimes is code for the fact that we think scaring the hell out of people, like literally... Is, is actually what's going to change them, all right? Now, I don't think that is what's going to change them. I think it's important for people to know the consequences and know how dodgy they are uh, if they don't already, but uh, I don't think that that's all of it. So one of the things that's happened for me personally in the last number of years is just the filling out of a clearer understanding of humanity. Now, I need a volunteer it's not going to be messy and it's not going to hurt. So anyone like to help me out here? It's not going to be that hard. Sam, Sam's going to come out. This would be good. Just, just come out. Just stand on. Can you stand there on that stage? Uh, this, this is a two-part stage here, right? And it's got... You, can everyone see this? Is it, it's a two, there's a line in the middle, right? You know what we're going to do is Sam and I are going to have a game of handball. All good? Are you ready for this? So I'm going to use this chucks for a ball are you ready okay oh, he's, he's giving me tips here I've got to get it over the line you ready see if you can get this one back he won all right round of applause for the young man good work thanks mate There was a, probably a bunch of things that were wrong with that little uh, illustration, but I'll tell you one thing that was wrong is that I didn't have a ball, right? Now, is this, is this Chucks, is it made for uh, playing handball? Okay. See, what I was actually doing just then is I was trying to make something that wasn't designed for a particular purpose operate a particular way that it wasn't meant to operate in. Does that make sense? 
and it didn't work very well. And that's kind of a, a large part of the problem with humanity is humanity's been designed and, and created in a particular way and we're furiously trying to make it work a different way to what it was meant to what it was created. Does that make sense? And it doesn't work well. It just doesn't work well when you do those kind of things. Uh, and so what's critical, and this is what we're going to do today, is we're going to look at how will you actually create it, all right? Uh, by definition, uh, about 90% of the time, right, because there's futility in the world, but 90% of the time, humanity works best when they operate in accord with how they've been made. All good? So we're going to go right back to the very beginning before sin and, uh, and read about how humanity was originally made. So if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. So I'm just going to give you, I'm going to close my eyes for 20 seconds. And they're up the back next to the, uh, the door up the back. I'm going to grab, grab a drink here. Go and grab one because you'll need it. All right, so we're going to the first book in the Bible on the first page probably in, the, uh, in that book. So Genesis chapter 1. You go right back, to, right back to Genesis chapter 1 with me. Should be pretty straightforward to find. Genesis <clears throat> chapter 1, I want to start at uh, verse uh, 26. So what we've had prior to verse 26 is God creating the whole, uh, the whole world, the universe, and every other universe, uh, every created thing, um, it, it would appear that we know of. Then God said... In verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here's the bottom line. Humanity has been made like God. Okay, And there's a sense, if you look on the screen up there, there's a sense in which humanity has been made extrospective. They've, made, they've been made to focus outwards, right? Like a mirror. Who looked in the mirror this morning before they came to church? Come on, you all did, right? Some of you going, I didn't. And your hair's just looking wonderful. All right? uh, that was random. It's like I just got up in the morning. I just wake up like this. All right? But most of you have, have looked in the mirror today and, you've, and the mirror has reflected something back to you. The purpose of a mirror is not to curve in upon itself, but to reflect something back, to reflect outside of itself. Everyone with me on that? That's what the purpose of a mirror is. So the bottom line is that you've actually been made in God's image and likeness. And people for centuries have, have noticed well and accurately that this is a critical part of what makes humans so valuable and so important. Um, it has this notion of being made in God's image has, has its place in all the discussions about human life, all right? And there's a lot of discussions about all the different parts of human life. Uh, this has been critical historically in understanding why human beings have intrinsic value, all right? We reflect God. Now, the big question has always been, how are we like God, all right? There's about, I think there's only about four or five times in the whole of the Old Testament where these, this kind of phrasing is used and it never actually describes what it actually means. So you've got every man and his dog has come up with an idea about what being made in God's image is actually meaning. All right? And a lot of it tends to, uh, to, to go with the flow of, uh, of where culture is kind of at, at, at the point in time that the writer is writing it. So what I want to do today is I just want to, I want to help you to just, just see a couple of pieces of low-hanging fruit that the image of God construct actually means and what that actually tells you about how you've been made. As we head in that direction, some of you might be going, yeah, but hasn't the image of God been trashed in people? Well, that's a whole nother debate, all right? But I think it's pretty clear if you look in the, uh, in the scriptures, in Genesis 9 verse 6, um, God still refers to humanity being made in his image. James 3 verse 9, uh, we'll get to a little bit later, it talks about how uh, people use their mouths to curse others who have been made in God's image. So there's a real sense, I think, that, uh, that, God, um, that the image of God, there's some residual image of God that's left over, albeit a corrupted version of it. So let's, uh, let's just have a bit of a dig here and see what we can find in the early chapters of Genesis about how you've been made, what this image of God actually uh, means. Here's the first one. You being created in God's image means that you're family. 
All right? And I get this from uh, Genesis chapter 5. So flick over a couple of pages. Genesis chapter 5. Uh, some of you might have the, uh, the subheading there, Adam's descendants to Noah. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. You notice that? Similar phrasing there. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. Do you hear that? It's the same kind of terminology there. After his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. What is uh, the image of God construct? What does that mean for us now? It means that you've actually been created as family. You see, uh, there's no surprises here. If you've been in the church long enough, you know the Father. Who's the Father? God's the Father and all of his created people are his family. That, that's kind of the idea that we've got here and that's no surprise. I mean, you get into Acts 17, 28, uh, in him we live and move and have our being as some of your poets have even said, for we are indeed his offspring. See, we're in something that's bigger than us. You know, sometimes you can get really focused about your family. Well, that's not the end of the family thing, right? There's a much more significant and important family going on than your individual nuclear family, right? That's really important. I'm not downgrading the importance of that, but there's a family that belongs to God himself. We've been made fundamentally communal. I want to show you a a clip from Over the Hedge. Some of you know I'm a bit of a fan of this movie. Um, and uh, it's, it's a lovely little clip at the end that speaks about family. And it's basically, this raccoon has basically ripped off a whole bunch of forest animals to try and stop from being killed by a bear, basically, is what it is. And anyway, long story short, this is the end of the movie. It's kind of a really nice, kind of warm, fuzzy end where they start talking about family. And this raccoon who tried to rip them off gets included. Uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> So this is the outdoor woods. I like it. Come on, big boy. You're coming with me. You know, RJ, um, just for the record, if you told us that all that food you were trying to get was to pay back an angry bear, we would have given it to you. Really? Yeah. That's what families do. They, they look out for each other. I've never really had anything like that. I know. But believe me, this, this is the gateway to the good life really wish you would have told me that sooner. Yeah, well, that's bad communication. Also, something families do. So what do you say? You want to be part of it? Oh, come here. Come here. Oh. I promise I wouldn't do this. <laughs> okay. Welcome to the family. What a first week of spring, huh? Here's the thing. You've, you've actually been made part of God's family. That's what the image of God means. It's like in Genesis 5, uh, Seth is made in the image and likeness of his father. All right? That, that is, at the minimum, that's just saying he's, he's like his dad. There's something that is, that, that's about it that's like his dad and he's, he's in family with his dad. And I just want to just push in a little bit on this. What does it actually mean that we are family and that we're God's family? What, is, what does that mean about the person sitting next to you? How do you go with that? Now, some of you are just going straight up, you're just going, well, I can think about family dysfunction, all right? Now, today, I, actually, I don't want to talk about, we're not talking about fallen anthropology, right? We're talking about created anthropology, okay? Where do you actually see the people next year, the people in Australia, the people in the world operating as family? I think you do actually see it. I think it's way short of what God intends for it, but I think you actually do see it. I mean, and you sit there and you kind of go, oh, it's a bit messy, you know, like it's a bit messy, the expression of family. Yeah, it is, but you can kind of actually see it. Well, let me give you, let's just jog your, your thinking a little bit. What about in tragedy? Do humans act kind of a bit like family in the middle of tragedy? You know, you, you think back to 2011 and the Toowoomba floods. 
I mean, what did you have? You had a whole bunch of people who don't even know each other come together and back each other and serve each other and be generous with each other. I mean, that, that's family, right? That's kind of what family does, you know? So you can kind of still see that there's some residual stuff actually going on there. I mean, people can get into hard times and now we've got the whole crowdfunding thing going on, right? People get into hard times. What do people do? Well, complete strangers give to people they don't even know. Now, I think that's incredible. It actually tells you, I think, that there's some kind of dynamic, a family dynamic that's, that's going on uh, for people. Now, it might be a dysfunctional family, <laughs> but I still think that we operate like family. And the reason why I think that still operates that way is because there's a residual image of God that remains in every single one of us. I don't know how many of you saw, the, uh, saw 60 Minutes last week, but there was this story on 60 Minutes about how parents were, were adopting children and then deciding like seven years after they had them that they didn't want them anymore. So they kind of put them on these sites and offered them to other people and all they had to do was sign a form and this adopted child could get transferred over to a different family. And we're not talking about foster kids, right? We're actually talking about adopted kids, all right? Um, and, and it's just bizarre. Like they had this shot of this um, meeting where all these people, potential adoptive parents came in and sat down and these kids had to walk up and do this catwalk walk up and back with this description about who this kid is while they were doing that, right? Now, it was, it was horrible, you know, and the, and the lady, the journal who was running it was, was horrified at it and she was saying that very clearly. And I think part of what's so horrible about that is that people instinctively know what family's meant to be and that wasn't it. Family's not meant to be... You're not meant to adopt a kid for seven to nine years and then decide, I'm done with you, I'm going to put you online and see if someone else wants to have you for their child. That's not what a parent is. That's not what a child is. That's not what the relationship's meant to be between them. People know what family's meant to be because I think there's some residual image of God inside of them. Number two, I think uh, the image of God, uh, image of God construct uh, tells us that humanity is actually hardwired to be relational. Go back to Genesis 1 with me. Just at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What's the next three words? Male and female. He created them. All right? There is a reality about your creation that means that you need someone else to know who you are. All right? Here's the bottom line. Eve doesn't know the fullness of her femaleness without Adam. Adam doesn't know the fullness of his maleness without Eve. Do you get that? Like they need each other. And they actually need to relate to each other to learn stuff about themselves. You know, we go back to the first point. It's like humanity, there's a, there's a familial connection. There's a family connection between people. All right? Now, here's the thing. If God made us family, what do families do? Relate. <laughs> Don't they? They relate. And God made them to actually relate. He made them to relate to one another. A family, by definition, is a group of people related to each other all right and there's a sense in which god's made them male and female so they'll learn about themselves from the other person there's a wholeness that's found in relationship that was lacking in adam as an individual and then you see this community of adam and eve this relationship going on between adam and eve this relational inclination what does that do well, it populates the whole world, folks. <laughs> All right? Go and do what married people do and have lots of babies. All right? Do you see that? That relationship, that relational kind of inclination, that relational kind of part of their anthropology is connecting with each other and it's actually creating life and life is coming out of that. So here's the bottom line. Whenever you see people relating to each other, whenever you see people being relational, you're seeing something of the image of God. Why do I say that? Because God is, by definition, relational. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, incessantly relating to one another in the Trinity. So whenever you see someone loving someone else, 
forgiving someone else, talking to someone else. See, God's a talker. Debating with someone else, embracing someone else, someone showing compassion, someone serving someone else. What you're actually seeing is a little bit of God. Fair enough? And I, I often sit there and I just go, that is amazing. <laughs> you know, 60 minutes, you know, last Sunday night, I was just, you know, I didn't watch it Sunday night because I was here, but I watched it on, on Monday. Oh, it might have even been a couple of days ago. But I watched it and I just went, the fact that Tara Brown has got a fix on what family's meant to be and it's not, that's really good. Like she knows something about what's going on and you can actually see a little bit of Jesus in Tara, even though I don't even know where Tara stands with Jesus and whether she likes him at all or not. But it doesn't matter. I, you can see a bit of God going on in Tara Brown. The, the striving for justice for these kids, just going, yeah, well, God does that, doesn't he? You guys read your Bible like he does it in your Bible, doesn't he? He does, right? He, he strives for justice and there will be justice. And he especially loves to defend widows and orphans. Amen? So here's the bottom line. If you have made, if you've been made fundamentally relational, and I'm going to get to a little, another aspect of that in a few moments, but if you've made fund, been made fundamentally relational, what does that mean about approaching things with a task orientation? It's like some people just, it's just like we just want to do a task all the time. We're doing a job. And I'm just, yeah, okay, well, let's play handball with the chucks. All right? Because it's like your job on the earth, ultimately, the ultimate expression, I think, of who you are is relationality. You do things relationally. You don't use a chucks to play handball. Don't intellectualize things only. You know, one of the things I've, I've thought about is, uh, you guys probably don't interact with it maybe quite as much as I do, but there's quite a large pool of, of Christians who, when they think about forgiveness, only think about forgiveness and repentance and confession in a judicial, I did a wrong thing way, I need to say sorry so I can get my slate wiped clean, right? Now that does happen, okay? But confession and repentance and forgiveness, if that's all that happens, that's anemic, right? And it's, it's, it's gaunt and probably dying, okay? Because the ultimate expression, the ultimate fullness, I think, of repentance and confession is about the restoration of a relationship. So it's not like you, you sit down and you just go, oh, I just blew it, all right? I just I yell at someone or I yell at someone internally. It's just, okay, God's cranky with me about that. So now I've got to say sorry for that. I've got to get that one wiped out. And you just go, no, well, hang on. Uh, you're relational by nature and you're always operating relationally and you're always operating relationally with God and with others and you've just busted something and something's just gotten in the way between you and God and you actually need Jesus to actually take that out of the way so you and God can get on fine. Okay? Fair enough? And that's what you're doing. It's like, we're friends, aren't we? It's, he's the father. <laughs> if he's the father and I'm the child, uh, let's get on well. Let's get on well. That, that would be fantastic to say the least. So let me, uh, just a couple more practical things here. Did you get up this morning with a keen sense of your need of other people? Did you? It's just like, God, I'm in trouble. If I'm left to myself today, you know, it's a bit like what, what, was, uh, what God said about Adam. He said, it's, you know, it's not good for him to be alone, right? Did you get that sense when you wake up this morning, sat on the edge of, the, edge of your bed and you're just going, yeah, it's not going to go well today if people don't come and help me, all right? Because that's the concept you get out of relationality here and the way that you've been made relational. It won't go well for you on your own. It will not go well for you. See, there's a couple of lies that we can tend to believe, and I'm not wanting to get into fallen anthropology too much, but I'm just dipping my toe in the water here. One is autonomy. You see, autonomy is that uh, I'm an independent being. I've got the right to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it, and how I want to do it. All right? There's a little bit of that goes on. And then the self-sufficiency lie. The self-sufficiency lie says, I've got everything within myself to be what I'm supposed to be and to do what I'm supposed to do. You know, do you reach out for help when you need it? There's a good question. 
Do you? Like some of you do. Some of you are sitting there, you're just going, yeah, 10 years ago, yeah, I'd really needed help 10 years ago. No, you needed it actually this morning, all right? You actually need help now. The way that even before sin comes into the world, you are needy of God's help and other people's help. There's nothing you can do about it. That's how you've been hardwired to operate. Paul Tripp says this, because the Bible clearly tells us that we're people who have been made for community, we were designed to live in worshipful community with God and humble community with people. We were never constructed to live all by ourselves. Even Adam and Eve needed God and one another. Think about this. They were perfect people living in a perfect world, yet they were still needy because they were not created to live life on their own. Just quick side back alley here, all right? Some of you still think that when it comes to operating in the church, right? You just want to do your own thing. And it won't work for you. Because you weren't made to do your own thing. You weren't made to be okay on your own. And we don't, we don't even want to force anyone to do anything in the church, right? And we don't want to force people to be in community groups. But I'll tell you something that happens in churches is that you have people, and it happens in the project, and I'm not cranky about it, but I'm just being straight with you. You have people in the project... And they go, we don't want to be part of any kind of community. And I honour that, right? I want to honour the dignity of people and their freedom to choose stuff, right? But then 18 months down the track, their life goes to hell, right? And they've got no one around them to actually support them, right? And sometimes they even say things like, why don't people come and help us? And I just go, well, you're not in a community. You're not connected to people. You're not actually operating the way that you're meant to operate. And it doesn't mean that I won't go and help them. I'll go and help them. But you're actually meant to be with other people who get alongside you and support you and help you to move on and to grow. Is everyone with me? I'm not cranky, really. And you don't have to be in a community group to do it, right? Let me just say that. You don't have to be in a community group to do it. But if you operate in a way that you're not meant to operate, the wheels will fall off. Do you hear me? They will fall off. (laughs) All right? They will fall off. Hear me? They're going to fall off. And if they fall off and you've got no one around to help you and you haven't been operating the way that God made you to operate, it's going to be trouble for you. Here's the rest of what Paul says. How about beginning to pray these three prayers every morning? It's a good start for you. Lord, I'm a person in desperate need of help today. Two, Lord, won't you, in your grace, send your helpers my way? Three, Lord, please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes. That would be a good way to start. See, God's made you to operate uh, in a space that needs help from other people. All right. Number three, hardwired for dependent dominion. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 there. Verse, so we're just going to read chapter, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form. And void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I want to stop there, but you get the idea. Most of you know the rest of Genesis 1 there, the creation story. What's happening there? I'll tell you what's happening there is God is dominating in a really, not in a, like an overpowering kind of way, but he's exercising dominion over creation and he's bringing order out of creation okay and then when you get down back down to verse 26 have a look there again that's that's that bit uh, where god says let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth all right here's how it's meant to work if you look at the first part of genesis 1 you know what it is it's god having dominion over creation and then he creates humanity and he says now you have dominion over what i've made So there's a sense in which imaging and mirroring God is he has dominion and he gives you kind of a delegated dominion, okay? Now the difference is this, and there's a huge difference here, right? The difference is that God's dominion is absolute and yours is a dependent dominion. Do you get that? And part of the problem is with humanity is that human dominion goes wrong when they're not dependent upon God and when they want to be like God and have the same kind of dominion that he actually has but here's the bottom line let's just start with the idea that humans are dependent i've just been talking about that a little bit before it's not good for adam 
to be alone. There's a dependency built into Adam. Acts 17, 28, I mentioned it before. It's in him that we live and we move and have our being. Can you flick across to Matthew chapter 6? If you can find that quickly. Matthew 6. Going to be in verse 26. So this is the uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you would know this quite well, a, a passage about anxiety. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious, so Matthew 6, 26, uh, about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Listen to this, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What, what's Jesus saying? He's going, God feeds the sparrows, he's going to look after you. Like there's an ongoing dependence that's actually going on there. You go down to verse 30 there in Matthew chapter 6. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith here's the bottom line god owns everything is that right he owns everything psalm 24 says the earth and everything in it and the people all belong to god so what does that change in you when you think about what it means that god owns everything and that we're dependent upon him i mean we haven't even got to the gospel right now the gospel is saying jesus came he died on the cross and he ransomed you right and the result of that is not only did you belong to God before that, but if you love Jesus, you belong to him even more. I mean, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 talks about that with the way that you actually use your body. You see, you belong to him and, and he's responsible for looking after you. God's the only non-contingent being in the universe. You're not, all right? He's made you contingent, which means he's made you dependent upon him and his help all of the time. And there's a weird thing that goes on with human pride sometimes is that humans kind of start getting the, the thought that God actually needs them. All right? And probably if we're, we probably don't say it if you've been a Christian and you follow Jesus because it's a bit uncomfortable saying that in public. Like, like if I walked in today and, and, and said, look, I, you know, God's, you know, if I don't get up and speak today, he's going to be in trouble. All right? He's going to have a real issue today. He doesn't. He doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need me to talk. He doesn't need you to serve him. He doesn't need anything from you. The way he set everything up is he wants to be overflowingly generous toward you so that you just get him more and more debt to him. And humans get this idea sometimes we pay God back and then he owes us something. He doesn't owe you anything. And some, you're looking at me like this is bad news. This is really good news, right? You've got a God who's incredibly generous to you, who doesn't care about you paying him back. And in fact, he doesn't want you to. He just wants you to enjoy being dependent upon him. Is that something you can enjoy? I think it is. Is it something that you do enjoy? I don't know. You can answer that. I remember um, working with this lady one time and uh, she'd been very badly treated uh, by um, some males uh, and badly hurt. And uh, just talking with her about God and Jesus and, you know, she had some, real, some really deep, deep wounds in her life from what had occurred um, with these people. Um, and what they did was... was uh, horrific uh, evil and I don't say that in a light-hearted way in any in any sense just a, a, a really bad thing uh, was done to her and uh, I, I can still remember where I was standing with her and I, I said to her I said uh, do you think that um, do you think maybe you could just talk to God about that and do, do you know what she said to me she goes she goes uh, she goes, I'll talk to God, she says, but I want to work it out and then I'll go and talk to him. And I, I was standing there and I'm just going, that, that's just not going to work. <laughs> like, I didn't say it quite like that to her. It's been gentle with her, hopefully. But I was just going, that, that won't work. 
And you know why it won't work? So it's not that it's not going to work because you don't have the capacity to do that. That just won't work because you weren't made to work like that. So it won't work. You know, and I'm standing there and I'm trying to persuade this lady. It's like, you really, and it wasn't even like a cheesy kind of thing. It's like, oh, you, you know, take this Bible verse, you know, with a, a cup of water and you should be fine in the morning, right? It wasn't one of those kind of moments. It was just like, I just reckon you should just even just talk to him about it, about what happened to you, you know? And uh, she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. And I left, uh, and I said, that, I said, I actually said to her, I said, that's not going to work. It won't work for you to, to do that. Because you are made to be dependent. If you go back over to, uh, to Genesis 1, keeping your eye there on that, that verse 27, I just want to speak briefly to the notion of dominion. Actually, it's verse 26. Dependent dominion. That's what we're gunning for here. Now, if you go to... Um, to verse 26 there, uh, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Now, the Hebrew word, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. You know, the Hebrew word for that word image can be translated as idol. Do you know that? So possibly, they don't do this, but possibly you could say that God created humanity as idols. All right? Now, back in the day in the Near East, let me set this up for you. Back in the day, here's how it would work. You would have a ruler over a nation, right? But the ruler did not have Skype or Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or any of that sort of stuff, right? So they couldn't mysteriously appear somewhere 200 k's away. So what they would do is they would set up idols of themselves in different areas in their nation. And what those idols would represent was the dominion and the rulership of that ruler. Does that make sense? And they'd kind of station them around the place and it would remind people that person's in charge. Okay? So here's the bottom line. You get the connection? Some of you are already getting it, right? God's made you to be dependent rulers, people to take dominion in his country. And we're meant to walk around representing his rule and his person and his dominion in our world. That, that's your job. So in a sense, you're little idols, all right? But you're not God, He's God, but you reflect him in his image so that people in the world see his rulership being brought to bear in the world through you. God's created humanity as part of his family, not to worship images of false deities, but to be the localised image of the true God walking around the planet. So let me ask you a few questions. Just going to push in a little here. Then we'll finish off on my last point. Do you work toward dependent dominion? Do you want power? Do you just want dominion? <laughs> now, some people don't want any of that. I mean, I think one of the things that goes badly wrong for young males in particular is when they don't have any dominion. They just end up doing dumb stuff. You just go, go out and get some dominion. You know, go out. You know, I mean, God's dominion in Genesis 1 is like bringing order out of chaos. Right? So there was chaos there, he's going to bring order. So then what does he say to Adam and Eve? Go and look after things. What's that? Have a nice garden, bring some order to the garden. Name the animals. All right? Do you see that? All that stuff is like go out and actually take dominion and exercise God's rule on the planet. So if you like gardening, like literally gardening, who likes gardening? You're actually, do, you're actually fulfilling part of the mandate. Some of you are going, do I have to garden? No, you don't, all right? But just, you start to think about it, you're just going, the image of God is actually being worked out in the way that people do things. So you've got, you know, we've got people in the church that work with computers, right? Computers go bad sometimes. Anyone know that? They go, they go chaotic, all right? And so someone coming in and bringing order to chaos is kind of, exerting dominion and rulership and bringing order to something you know you got people out there searching the deep dark depths of the sea and then they find another species what does humanity do when that happens they name it why because that's part of what it means to be made in god's image you go out and you exercise god's rule and you bring order and structure to the world that's what god's asked us to do we make things work in new ways things that people hadn't even thought of like that is the image of god at work 
But we also see humans abusing dominion, don't we? You see that? You see, it goes wrong when human dominion becomes a striving for God's dominion rather than a dependent dominion, a sub-ruler, so to speak. We can see humans making others slaves and becoming slaves ourselves. But more on that next week. So the last one's this. This one here. This is related to the image of God construct, but not directly in it. We are hardwired worshippers, all right? Now, terminology is really important, right? I, I pretty much never get up here and say, God made you to worship. I don't think I've ever said that since the project's been running, okay? If I did, it was an accident. God made you worshipping. You worship all the time. You're like a fire hose that's stuck on, right? It's like the only thing that you can actually do with it is direct it, okay? You can't shut that thing off. It's stuck in the on position and the water's going to keep coming out. The worship will always come out. It just depends on where you're actually going to focus it. The way that God made it to work is God made it that he would be continuously outpouring toward you and you would be worshipping him in response to his kindness. Have a look at... Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7 on the screen there. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. See, he's abounding. I'm not going to read all of that, but he's abounding in everything that's about his character. All right? So it's like he keeps some love for you. You know, sometimes I think we think about God the way that we think about ourselves. It's like... Okay, so he's got a mercy pantry, right? And if, he's, if, he's, if there's a piece in there for me, which the Bible kind of talks about, you have a, he keeps mercy for you and steadfast life. It's just like, what does that mean he's got less? <laughs> no, it doesn't, all right? He just overflows all the time. His character overflows all of the time. It's, it's kind of a spillover all of the time. Listen to this from Harold Best. Uh, he says, God cannot but give of himself, reveal himself, pour himself out, even before he chooses to create and before he chooses to reveal himself beyond himself, he eternally pours himself out to his triune self in unending fellowship, ceaseless conversation and immeasurable love and to an infinity of the same. Isn't that good? He's just, it's spilling out all the time. That's the nature of God's character. And the way that God's made us is he's made us to worship in response to that. Best goes on to say, we begin with one fundamental fact about worship. At this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. Everyone is being shaped thereby and is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or of evil. No one is exempt and no one can wish to be. Listen to this, we are every one of us unceasing worshippers and will remain so forever. See, we see this again in Romans 1.25 where Paul makes it really clear that humans either worship creation or the creator. It's an either-or situation, all right? And we do do that, all right? We absolutely do do that. So what is worship? Well, if you go through the scriptures, you will notice a whole bunch of terminology that's related to the concept of worship. And I'm not going to stitch all these up for you, but I'm just going to show you a few, right? You were made at the start before sin to desire God, to actually want Him. So it's like you get up in the morning sometimes. Does anyone have this? You get up in the morning and you just go, I don't really feel like talking to Him. I don't really feel like reading the Bible. Does anyone feel like that sometimes? So that, that is an aberration of reality, right? That's not how you've been made to work. You've been made to actually desire him, right? The fact that you go dull sometimes is kind of a, uh, a bit of a corruption of, of the way that you've been made, all right? You're made to love God. You're made to trust him, to believe in him, to fear him, to obey him, to long for him, to value him, to pursue him, to hope him, to serve him, to sacrifice for him to bless him and to get your identity from him. Like that's your default setting. That's what worship is, right? You do that all the time, all right? You, you do those kind of things all the time. 
and not wanting to go into it today but just think for a moment it's like is there always something that you desire is it always something that you trust is it is it do you believe things do you fear things do you obey things and as you go through you just go yeah i do do those things i do do those things that that is how i've actually been made do you get your identity from things yeah you do it's like hardwired human setting is worshipers everyone everyone with me you good and then we kind of kick on just a little bit from this and you realize that worship of god is actually loving god and here's the bottom line you are an unceasing lover all right not in the dodgy kind of sexual way right but you're an unceasing lover, all right? What am I saying? You always love something. You always do. There's always something that occupies the highest affection in your life. See, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Then Jesus reiterates that in Mark 12, 30 to 31, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind with all your strength the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these here's the thing <laughs> if i came up to you right and i had a an android phone okay and i said to you i really worship god and i love this phone you just go what the like what you, can you say that again is, is anyone with me like you just you just go it doesn't make sense to me right because here's the thing the thing that you love the most is probably the thing that you worship true the thing that actually captures your heart and your affections the most is actually the item or the thing that you worship see it's not possible for a human to worship god and at the same time love something else more than him because what people love kind of kills off the worship that people say that they've got <laughs> and it actually reveals the worship that they are engaged in their affections tell us about that see worship and loving i think are synonymous one of uh I just want to, want to finish at this point in time and just a little bit of a segue into next week. I, um, I grew up in a, uh, in, in a family that well, we, we did the Westminster Conf- Confession of Faith and the Shorter and the Longer Catechism for Family Devotions, all right? So that's, you know, that's, that's why I've just got a weird tick every now and then. Um, and you know, it's something that was, uh, was really kind of drilled in uh, for us uh, and for me personally was the, the whole notion of um, total depravity, which total depravity, um, has anyone ever heard of that? Has anyone ever heard of that, total depravity? Let me tell you what total depravity actually means. Total depravity is that there's not one part of humanity that's unaffected by sin, but it doesn't mean that people are as bad as they possibly could be. Does that make sense? Sin's kind of corrupted and rusted stuff in every aspect of humanity, but it actually hasn't rusted it to its fullest extent uh, in everyone. So one of the things that kind of malfunctioned in my kind of thinking and my understanding as I was growing up is that I could not accept that anyone would ever be able to do anything good who didn't love Jesus, all right? So you'd, be, you'd watch someone, someone would give $1,000 to someone who's in trouble, and they they didn't love jesus and i I would just be going yeah there's there's something sneaky going on there (laughs) do you know what i mean they got to be a filthy sinner at some point there you know and it maybe probably all right but here's the thing the this what i've been talking about today about um the image of god and how there's some residual left over gives us another category to actually understand people operating in the way they operate when they don't love jesus people can do good things all right now i'm not talking about i'm not saying that people can do righteous things that are acceptable to god in and of themselves because i think there's things are probably tainted by sin 
probably everything's probably tainted at some level by sin, okay? So I'm just talking about a, a, just a street level. I think people can do good things, okay? And when people do good things, you know what they make me think of now? They don't make me try to think of some way that they're being evil in doing something good. They just make me think of Jesus. Because I just think that's what he's like. You know, when you, when you look at someone who doesn't love Jesus and they've got six foster kids or four foster kids, that's what Jesus would do. <laughs> and I look at him and I just go, you've got some residual image of God going on in you. You're, you're still like him. Even though you don't like him, you still like him. See, there's lots of good things going on, but here's the truth. Most of you have probably been sitting there just going, yeah, but we've got ourselves a bit of a mess on our hands. And we do, right? And part of that is that humanity made to curve outwards has curved in on itself and it's just gotten really, really messy. There's a uh, Latin phrase, incurvitus in se, um, which Martin Luther, he was one of the um, first guys to really work on it hard. I think Augustine had a, a similar one, but it was a little bit different. But Martin Luther basically said uh, that humans have a tendency to curve in on themselves and it goes messy when that actually happens. Sometimes it's easier to identify humanity when we see a lack of it. All right? Sometimes it's easier to, to see that. When we see corrupted versions, it challenges our implicit assumptions of what a true human is. So I just want to show you a quick clip. I'll actually ask the worship team to come up. Um, and this clip... Uh, is a bit of a, uh, an expression of the fact that it's easy to see sometimes what humanity is meant to be when you see the way that humanity uh, is not doing that. Good evening and welcome to 60 Minutes. Sometimes greed is so consuming it blocks out all human reasoning and logic. How else can anyone explain Adil Khan's actions? Two years ago, the 46-year-old deliberately blew up his Sydney convenience store so he could claim $225,000 of insurance. The blast was so destructive, the two-storey building crumbled to the ground and three innocent lives, including an 11-month-old baby, were lost. That Adil Khan thought he could get away with the crime is as outrageous as the act itself. And next week, this evil man will be sentenced for murder, manslaughter and arson. But no amount of prison time will be long enough for the grieving families of those he killed. See what she said at the start? She said, greed can be so strong that it snuffs out human reasoning and logic. Something has gone tragically wrong in our world. Something has fractured the humanity that I've been talking about today, the, the created humanity, and we know it, right? Something violent and tragic has happened. There's a love for something lesser <laughs> that has messed all of this up. I mean, you can see that in that story. You, you know that story. It's, it's only, uh, it was only on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago. He loved something and he trashed humanity. He loved something lesser than God. This is what we're going to look at next week.